Have you ever gotten your message lost in translation? Launched a well-thought-out content on social media only to get lost in the noise? Welcome to the Moving Beyond Acronyms Podcast. We are here to help you with practical tools to find your voice, craft shareable content, stand out in the marketplace, expand your tribe, and convert followers into ambassadors or customers. I'm Torrent, your host, a message master that's helped leaders, entrepreneurs, and businesses ignite their message with lasting impact. Each week, we will go behind the scenes to share real and deep conversations with the most prominent message masters on how they took an idea and crafted content that have trended to the stratosphere, boosted the bottom line, and improved the world around them. Now, let's get started. I am truly excited today to introduce to you David Merman Scott, a futurist that has for 30 years seen the patterns of the universe, of where marketing and communication is headed, and has written multiple bestsellers on this topic. He saw the power of the internet and how that would transform marketing and PR and wrote a bestseller, New Rules for Marketing and PR. And it was internationally bestseller. It sold 400,000 copies as of today. It has been translated to 29 different languages and is currently used in 300 universities. Not only that, David saw the implications of Google starting to publish real-time and wrote another New York Times bestseller called Real-Time Marketing and PR and also came up with a new word called newsjacking, a word that is now in the Oxford Dictionary and is actually a method that I've used and it's very successful in gaining attention in the media. And lastly, and recently, he has really seen the power of fans. Where do fans go and how do fans build businesses? And he wrote a book with his daughter, Raiko, and it's called Phenocracy, and it was released this March and is another bestseller. So today we're going to be talking about the future of marketing and PR, rules of engagement with fans as they're gaining more power, and how has COVID impacted marketing and PR? And lastly, the importance of cultivating your passion to build your business. And we'll also talk about David's passions, Grateful Dead, live concerts, and Apollo 11. We have a lot to cover, so let's get started. Welcome to the Moving Beyond Acronyms podcast. I'm really excited to have David Berman Scott, who's kind of been a mentor of mine, which he didn't really realize because his book, New Rules for Marketing PR, which I bought in 2007, has been with me. And when I travel, I don't take many books with me, but that's the one book I've always had and used as a guide in my positions. And so it's really, really exciting to have him here. The book itself has been a huge bestseller. It's been translated 29 language, including Norwegian. It sold 400,000 copies and is at the 300 universities. So it's a staple for us communicators. And it's great to have you here. You've done a lot of other things. You have all these wonderful um, hobbies that we can go through and your passions. And, and I think really what I like about your website when I was looking at it is that you have this thing about passion, intensity, and connect, which I think yeah. is really what everything you're doing kind of from the beginning. And uh, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. What a wonderful introduction. Yeah, the idea of passion is so important because passion is infectious. And so when somebody has passion for their work or they have passion for something in their personal life, 
that passion is infectious. And one of the things that I noticed that's so interesting is there's a lot of people who have their LinkedIn profile, which is their professional life. So here I am, very serious, very buttoned up. And then they don't show any of the things that they love to do. They don't show what they're passionate about. They don't show the fact that they love to snowboard or that they're into bird watching or that they have a vintage Jaguar or whatever. They don't show, they don't share those things. And I think that the more you can show that you're passionate, the more people are attracted to you. So I'm on a bit of a, of a, of a rant here about the idea of please don't separate your very staid, stuck up, boring LinkedIn profile and the rest of you as a fun and interesting person, you know, celebrate that and share what you love to do in your private life with your personal contacts. And I think that's what's so fascinating because I think you're brought up, like for me, that's been a communications professional behind the scenes. And that's where you've challenged me, like on other conversations is be more honest, be more yourself and, and share. And it's almost like you've been this habit to hide your passion. Yeah. And I think that's what's so interesting with the book that you have, not only New Rules for Marketing PR, but Phonocracy, and both of them are bestsellers. It's kind of like, how do you show yourself? And that's what you've done. You've all these amazing hobbies and you stand there for those. And it kind of, like you said, it either attracts or detracts people. But I think we're taught so much not to be passionate. I think that's right. And, you know, one of the manifestations I see it all yeah. the time and again, I'm going back to LinkedIn because LinkedIn is a professional network where people's LinkedIn profiles, I think I've done a sort of a rough count, 99% of them are written in the third person, which is the weirdest thing to me is that, you know, David is a marketing strategist. Well, it's like, it's your LinkedIn profile. Why do you write in the third person? Are I know, you I've done the same. And so, so I always say to people, I always say to people when I see that, you know, I don't reach out to unless they ask, but, you know, I say, wait a minute, you know, if you want people to be attracted to you, use I, it's your LinkedIn profile. Say, I do this, I do that, you know, and have some fun with it. I open my LinkedIn profile this way. I say, I was fired, sacked. I love that. I was, I like was horrified when I read it, but I loved it at the same time. And, you know, people don't normally do that on their LinkedIn profile. So, so yeah, you know, celebrate what you love, do the things that you love to do, and then share those with us. We want to know. And I think it's interesting because you're bringing up the thing with getting fired. And I've really been reflecting on it in preparation for this interview was kind of like you, at, even at that point, you had some amazing ideas in the early 90s about the web, the internet. You've had this kind of futuristic foresight on where things are going. And how do you think that that has kind of been in your DNA? Is it because of your, like your love for um, the Apollo Lunar program? Is it, is it that you're, you have a creative mindset? What do you think, even at that point, you were creative and saw this opportunity and change and revolution with the internet? So when I first got out of school back in 1983, I'll date myself, I did what was expected. I chased a salary, I chased money, and I went to work on Wall Street at a, on a bond trading desk. And I found that I hated it. And I had a decision to make after about a year in, am I going to stick with this? And, you know, as long as I don't do anything silly, I can end up with a big house and a fancy job title and all that. 
where do I want to follow my passion? Which I did. I, I quit that job. And what, what I really loved about the bond trading that I was doing was not bond trading, which I was bad at and I didn't like, but the information behind the bond, what the bond traders were using. So companies like Dow Jones and Reuters, what they were doing, I thought was fascinating. Real-time news, that's crazy. And I'm, I'm talking 1980s real-time really? news. Really? That early? Yeah. On Dow, wow. you know, Dow Jones and Reuters were delivering real-time news um, back then. That was way before the web. And so I loved it. I thought it was fascinating. And so I, I was constantly chasing the things that I felt were fun. And then I said, I love to travel. So I moved to Tokyo. I lived in Tokyo for seven years. My wife, uh, Yukari, is Japanese. And then I lived in Hong Kong for a couple of years. And you know, I decided I wanted to live outside my country. That was important to me. That was interesting to me. You know, and along the way, my, my dad and, and other people who knew me were always trying to, to dissuade me from doing the things that I want to do because it's like, well, Dave, you've got a great job on Wall Street. You're working for a big investment bank. Why would you throw that away? Or you've got a great career opportunity on Wall Street. Why would you move to Japan? That's crazy. And so specifically what happened was in the 90s, I realized in 1995 was the dawn of the of the internet as we know it now because 1990 August of 1995 was when Netscape went public. So that was the first wide availability of web browsers was Netscape. And everybody on the planet was saying, "Oh, this is so new. This is so different. Oh, I can go online and, and you remember back then it was the dial-up systems and all that. I can go online and I can see these websites. Oh, this is crazy." I can see the news. How interesting is that? And I'm like, that's nothing. I've been seeing that for a decade. I've been doing this for oh, a decade. Wow. Yes, that's so, so I realized that I had a head start. And I recognized before anybody, I was the first person to write about it. There may have been other people who recognized it, but they didn't write about it. The first person who recognized and wrote about the fact that marketing and communications on the web is not the metaphors we already knew. It's not about spending money on advertising. And it's not about convincing members of the media to write about you. So traditional public relations was that you had to find somebody in the media to write about you or broadcast about you. Traditional advertising was that you had to spend money to put your message into somebody else's media. And that's what marketing and public relations had been for decades and decades and decades. And I said, well, wait a minute, there's something going on here. You can actually create a website yourself. That can be your public relations. That can be your marketing and advertising. You don't have to spend any money. You don't have to talk to any journalists. You can do it yourself. And that's what became the new rules of marketing and PR. So I was talking about those ideas in the late 90s and into the early 2000s. I started my initially an email newsletter starting in the late 90s. Then I had a blog I started in 2004. And then I started writing the, what became the New Rules of Marketing and PR in 2005. And then that book in the first edition came out in, as you said, 2007, which is the edition you have. And then it's now in the seventh edition, the seventh edition released just a couple of weeks ago. So I've, I've had... Four or five times in my career where I saw a pattern in the universe that nobody else was talking about. I'm not saying no one else saw it, but I am saying no one else was writing about it and speaking about it. And those times that I saw patterns in the universe that nobody else was seeing, 
And I felt absolutely committed to the idea that this is really interesting and this is really important. Those were the times that I ended up writing books. And those are the times my books became bestsellers because I was recognized something that other people weren't seeing. But I was basing it on what I found fascinating. I was basing it on what was interesting to me. I was basing it on the fact that other people weren't seeing what I was seeing. And what I was seeing, I knew was truthful. I knew was important. I knew needed to get out there. And that's when I would start to write. And How did you see the pattern? You know, it was just out there. It's like, I can, <laughs> I can literally see it. So, so it's happened to me, I'll, I'll mention three ways, three times. The first time I just talked about, it was the idea that marketing on the web is not about spending money on advertising or trying to convince the media to write about you. Marketing on the web is about publishing your own content. That became the new rules of marketing and PR. And you saw that before anyone else. I, you saw that, it before anyone else? I, I saw that before anybody else. The new rules of marketing and PR is the first book that ever talked about that. And when I was blogging about it, it was, I was very, very early. And I'm not saying I was the only one. And I'm not saying there, there wasn't other blogs talking about it. But there really was nobody else who was out there pounding the pavement with that idea the way. But I totally agree with you because when I was, I've been working on communications that when I saw that book, I was like, oh my gosh, finally, someone is saying what we've been all been thinking. So it's kind of, you put down on paper what I've been thinking and how do I navigate myself? Because I was working on press release mode. It's like, you have to write that press release, you have to go to the media. And what was nice about the book, it's like, no, it's not really just about that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And like I said, there were other people who recognized it like you, but I was the first person to articulate it in the form of a book and and on the speaking circuit. And it was really interesting on the speaking circuit way back in 07 and 08, there were a lot of vested interests in the advertising and public relations business, you know, who were, you know, sitting back in their chairs as I was speaking with their arms folded and looking, looking down at their feet because, they either didn't agree with me or they secretly agreed with me, but were scared to death about what it means for them. The second time that I saw patterns in the universe that I felt nobody else was seeing was, remember I mentioned I started as a bond trader. Bond trading is real time. It's instant. It's right now. It's this second. You know, if you see something in the news right now, you can trade on that and potentially make millions of dollars. But if you wait a minute, it might be too late. A couple of things happened about a decade ago, roughly a decade ago. The first thing that happened, and very few people remember this, but Google went real time. About a decade ago, Google was not real time. Not, not a lot of people remember that. But if really? you, yeah, no, it wasn't. I didn't know that. If you, you would have remembered, if you think back, you might remember this, but you know, let's say 2007 or eight. If you published a new blog post, it did not appear on Google for another couple of weeks. If you changed your website, it didn't appear on Google for a couple of weeks. If you put out- You're a new, right. I never thought about that. Yeah. If you created a brand new website, it took a, a, a month for Google to find it and index it. And so what happened was Google figured out how to do real time. And all of a sudden, they flipped a switch, essentially. And when I published a blog post, it was instantaneously available through search. When I changed a website, it was instantly available through search. And I thought that was one of the most important changes in web history 
at that point. And I thought, this is unbelievably important. And nobody was paying attention to me. I said, this is unbelievably important. And at the same time, the same, right around the same time, Twitter took off. Um, so Twitter was founded, I believe, 06 or 07, but it didn't really gain popularity until 08. There was a, maybe a million people on Twitter. And then 09 and 10, it really started to take off. So around the same time that Google went real time, Twitter and people were saying, oh, who cares about Twitter because it's, you're just telling people what you ate for lunch. I said, no, this is real time. This is a real time social network. This is about instantaneous communications. And so I put those things and some other things together into what I called real time marketing and real time marketing and PR. That became a book by that title, Real-Time Marketing and PR. That book also hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. And it showed people, and again, there maybe were other people talking about it, but there was nobody talking about it in the way I was. There was no one evangelical, uh, being no, even totally agree with you. evangelical yeah. about the ideas of real-time communications and what Twitter meant and what, and no one was talking about the fact that Google went, went real-time. People knew it, but it's like, oh, well, that's interesting. Uh, was there a news story about that? I don't even remember that. It was, um, it, it, yes, Google talked about it and some people picked up on it, but nobody that I, no one else that I've, I ever read saw how, unbelievably important that was. I don't think even Google knew how unbelievably important that was. And it's probably because of your experience, you know? It was because I, because I was on a bond trading desk, I think. Yeah. I understood what real-time communications is. Around the same time, I also invented a concept called newsjacking, which is when you follow a news story and every news story breaks on the same way, it's a bell-shaped curve. You follow a news story and then you, as a marketing tactic or a public relations tactic, you create uh, a real-time piece of, of content, a blog post, a tweet, a video, or even a, uh, doing a speech that the purpose is to put your ideas into that breaking news cycle because you have an area of expertise that might be re that's related to the story that's coming out. So I, I invented what I called newsjacking. And, and it's in the dictionary. Yeah, newsjacking <laughs> is now so popular. It's in the Oxford English Dictionary, which is super cool. But here's something interesting. Back in um, 2015, August of 2015, 18 months before the U.S. presidential election, I predicted Donald Trump would win because of his use of Twitter. He was the only candidate who was real time and he was the only candidate who was newsjacking. And a lot of people don't remember this, but I think this is one of the reasons that he won. Is really? because yeah. Yes. I, I blogged about it in, in August 2015. I was, and people thought I was crazy. What are you talking about? Is there a reality? This was, that was before any primaries had even been run. I said, Trump's going to win the election. And because... He would follow what was going on. And then he would put out a tweet, which was an instant comment, and the media would pick up on it. And he, in the, before the first primary, he had a billion dollars worth of, of, ad, of ad equivalency in terms of free media. Because, One billion? Because the media was picking up on his tweets. They, the media all started following his tweets and were quoting his tweets. Well, they still are. They're still doing that. 
But at the time, it was radical. No one else was talking about that. So that's why I predicted that Trump would win. And I remember distinctly one of the most brilliant times that he did that. And I think I'm not going to talk about we're not going to talk about politics here. I don't I don't want to talk about politics. However, I do want to say that Trump is a brilliant marketer. Make America great. What a wonderful slogan. I'm not saying you disagree or agree with it. That's I not totally the agree. point. But what I want. And, and by the way, I, I ask all over the world and I've asked this question in like 20 countries. What was Donald Trump's campaign slogan in 16? hundred percent of people rem- remember Make America Great. Doesn't matter what country. I ask, what was Hillary Clinton's? Even in this country, United States, less than 10% of the people remember Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign slogans. Do you remember? Onward? Nope. Okay. Stronger together. So Trump was a better marketer. And so here's my favorite Trump newsjacking is during Hillary Clinton's Democratic National Convention speech, in um, the summer of 2016, just you know, a couple months before the election, she was giving the biggest speech of her life, and Trump was live tweeting it. Now, here's why that's brilliant: because <laughs> it's always it's always been an unwritten rule that when the other party was doing their convention, that you basically went dark. So it's always an unwritten rule that um, when the Republicans are doing their convention, the Democratic candidate would just go in hiding, wouldn't say anything. Trump said, why should I do that? And, and literally, as Clinton was talking, he was, in, I don't know where he was, let's say the Trump Tower, on Twitter, commenting as she was speaking. Now, what did this mean? This meant that every story that was talking about Hillary Clinton's speech had to include quotes of, from Trump. That's newsjacking. And um, I believe that's what got Trump elected. And well, never mind the fact that Trump is still newsjacking for the last three and a half years as president, which I absolutely do not agree with. And I'm not talking about politics. I'm not saying whether I do no, or support Trump, but as a marketing strategy, that was pretty cool. So those are two ways that I recognized patterns. And, and then and the third one is the phenocracy. The third one is the phenocracy, yeah. my newest book, which came out in January of 2020 and also hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. And the idea of phenocracy is that we humans all want to be part of, tri- of a tribe of like-minded people. And in our superficial online world that we're all living in right now, we strive for a true human connection. And that true human connection partly is driven by what we're a fan of. And in my case, I'm a fan of the Grateful Dead. I'm a fan of surfing. I have some other fan, or NASA, the lunar program, I'm a huge fan. So that became sort of the third big time where I had, I saw patterns in the universe and decided to articulate. How did you them. see that? How did you see that? If you look back on your life, like we know right now that being a bond trader has really lifted you. And that's what I always say. The best marketers and communications people are not the ones that have taken the traditional route. It's the ones that have come from the outside that sees different patterns on using communications and marketing. So you've done that through your bond trading. And then you saw you saw these two. But how did you see phenocracy? Because now that at that point, you've been almost like 20 years in the field. Oh, 30 years, actually. What happened with Fanocracy was about five years ago, maybe a little more, five and a half years ago, I started to think, it is crazy. I I literally keep a spreadsheet. It's crazy that I've been to 804 live music shows in my life. (laughs) 
starting at age 15. And you have a spreadsheet uh, all the way from then? Uh, no, because spreadsheets didn't even exist when I was 15. <laughs> I kept my ticket stubs on the, in, the, in the first 20 years. And then when spreadsheets came along, I, I entered them into the, into the spreadsheet. And then I went back and, and typed in all the, based on the tickets. Oh, wow. Stuff. You did that. Oh, my God. I, I did. I did. 804 live shows. I know I'm missing some, some of the ones I saw as a teenager or in my 20s, because I don't remember the dates or whatever. So 804 live shows. I've been to 75 Grateful Dead concerts are my favorite band. And I'm thinking to myself, this is crazy. Why? You know, and, and also I calculated roughly that I spent about a half million dollars on, on concerts. And that, um, whether that's tickets or travel or beers, you know, I, these days I fly on airplanes to go to music festivals and stay in expensive hotels. And it adds up half a million dollars. And so I was talking to my daughter, Reiko. She's now 27. So she would have been about 21 at the time. And I said, it's, a, it's crazy how much of a fan I am of live music. And she said, I know, Daddy, I'm a massive fan of Harry Potter. And of course, I knew that. But she's not only read every Harry Potter book multiple times, watched every Harry Potter movie multiple times, been to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter theme park in Orlando twice, flew to the UK to go on the studio tour. But she also wrote an 85,000 word alternative ending to the Harry Potter series where Draco Malfoy is a spy for the Order of the Phoenix and put that on a fan fiction site, which has been downloaded thousands and thousands of times. So as much of a Grateful Dead fan and live music fan as I am, Reiko is a fan of Harry Potter. So I said to her, you know, I'm thinking about doing a book about this idea of fandom. And I started to quiz her, you know, like, well, tell me about Harry Potter fandom. She also loves to cosplay at Comic-Con. She gets dressed up with her friends. Yeah, I was reading that. Tell me, tell me about going to Comic-Con. And, and then she said, well, you know, Comic-Con is like this. And, here's, and then so I went to Comic-Con myself. And I wrote about it. I did. <laughs> and I didn't get dressed up. But I just went because I wanted to check it out. And then I wrote a little story about Comic-Con. And I sent it to her. And she said, Daddy, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I said, well, I'm thinking about writing this book. Do you want to write it with me? And, she's, and at, at first she was taken aback. She thought it was really a weird request. And then she said, well, yeah, sure. Why not? Let's do it together. So we ended up writing the book together. And it's perfect because, yes, we're, we have different fandoms. I'm really into the live music. She's really into Comic-Con and Harry Potter. But also she's a millennial woman. I'm a baby boomer man. She's mixed race. I'm white. She's a scientist. She graduated with a neuroscience degree from Columbia University and then uh, went on to medical school where she just graduated. And she's now an emergency room resident at Boston Medical Center. So we have the same idea about fandom, but we're very, very different in terms of people. So she's a And perfect... that's what I liked about the book, because you. you saw the patterns of her. I didn't realize it's about fan fiction. And I didn't realize that fan fiction, like fans, and I think that's why I like your word, phonocracy, instead of fandom, because phonocracy shows that fans actually have a certain sense of authority. Yes. And, and, I, yes. and, I, didn't, and I never thought of that until I read your book, because it's like, wow, fans have rights. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. And, I, and, I, and I, I never thought of fans having rights. You're thinking of you're thinking of the traditional pattern of a fan. And I thought that was so interesting because reading about her fan fiction, I didn't even know about that. And that you even have organizations and rules and legal and, and you can't steal the fans uh, ending, you know, it was just really fascinating. It's a really fascinating aspect. And that's one reason why Reiko is such a fabulous co-author 
because of, I mean, fan fiction is amazing. It's, and it's something I never understood at all until she started to write about it and talk to us about it, my wife and I. But there's hundreds of thousands of individual stories that have been written in the Harry Potter canon where different things happen. People imagine what would Harry Potter be like if Hermione was black? What would Harry Potter be like in my daughter's case, the one she wrote, if Draco Malfoy was a spy for the Order of the Phoenix? What would the story be like 20 years after they graduated from Hogwarts? And, and people imagine that and then they write entire novels about it or stories about it. And that's called fan fiction. And it's really, really important for the people who love those particular canon because they need more than the seven books and they consume way more than just the seven books. Um, the other thing Reiko brought to our project is the whole medical thing. And she's um, a pioneer in something called narrative medicine. It was originally out of Columbia University where she studied undergraduate. And narrative medicine, I think you would find fascinating because it's kind of related to the things that, you're stu- you're, that you study. But narrative medicine is an understanding of the patient's whole story, not just their symptoms. If you go to the doctor and the doctor says, what hurts? Does it hurt if I press here? Oh, I think you have this. Take this medicine and go away. I mean, I'm exaggerating. It's a really different experience than if the doctor doesn't even talk to you about your symptoms, but then starts with your story, tell me your story, and then creates a narrative for who, what kind of person you are. That's what narrative medicine is. And Reiko loves it because she's a writer. She understands narrative. She's a storyteller. And so she makes up stories about her patients to help describe in her mind what's driving them. And that many times that's led to a different healthcare outcome than simply deciding that based on the symptoms, this is what's the problem and here's what I want you to do. And she tells a story of a patient that she met who was suffering from an incurable disease and knew he knew that he had only a certain number of months or years to live. Didn't know how long, but knew that that was coming. And he said to her, and Reiko said, well, what do you love to do? And, and they ended up spending an hour talking about his art. He's an artist. He loves art. I'm an amateur artist. He does sculpture. And then they finally got around to the fact that he's terminally ill. And, and he said to her, he said, you know, I've never said this to anyone, but I don't want to live unless I'm able to make my art. And that's how, that's how I dis- decide whether I want to be kept alive. Yes, I want to be alive as long as I can do my art. If I'm no longer able to do my art, I'm ready to go. And that's because of of his story, his narrative. And that defines a way of doing medicine that's different than the traditional way that we do medicine in this country. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, I remember that story in, in, in the book and I was like really fascinated because a lot of times you feel like you're just this machine and you're just like a product going in and out. And it's all about this listening and and taking that time. And I and we can't underestimate it, but I feel like society is underestimating. And I feel like that's kind of where marketing too, like let's have fans. And that's what I love so much about the name of your word, phonocracy. It's that you can't just take from fans or give something free and not it really being free there has to be 
you have to really respect the fans because the fans itself need to have certain rights and certain rules need to be applied. That's exactly right. One of the things that Reiko said that is so important to the book, um, she was so succinct about it. She said, once you put your art or your product or your idea out into the marketplace, it no longer belongs to you. You know, that's, it's a simple concept, but it's true. You put it out there, it no longer belongs to you. If people choose to use your product in a way you didn't intend, that's the, what they want to do. If they choose to talk about you in a different way than you intended, that's how they choose to do it. You can't control that. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. What do you think then with COVID? Because what I like so much, I don't know if you can explain a little bit about the 12 feet rule, like how there's a certain level of even shown through how important that intimacy level of being close to someone, having that physical closeness is important, which I understand from, from the book, but at the same time, how do you now look at that from COVID with this distancing and, and now having to almost find the 12 feet closer online? So, yeah, um, we did speak with a number of neuroscientists about what's going on in our brains when we become a fan of something. And it turns out all humans are hardwired to want to be part of a tribe of like-minded people because that's where we feel safe and comfortable and secure. And it goes back thousands and thousands of years because if you're with your tribe, you had people to support you, you were safe. If you were out in the bush all by yourself, you were vulnerable. And so one neuroscientist whose name is Edward T. Hall identified different levels of proximity. Further than 12 feet, he called public space. And in public space, our brains know that people are there, but we don't track them. Inside of 12 feet to about four feet is what he called social space. So now with COVID, we're doing social distancing, which means keeping people in our social space. And then for inside of four feet is called personal space which is where the most powerful human connections happen inside of four feet. That's why at a cocktail party, which is typically meet, you're meeting people inside of four feet and you, and you know, those people typically they're part of your tribe. Typically that's where very powerful human emotions happen. If you're in a crowded elevator, you're four feet from other people. You don't know them. You can't help but feel vulnerable. And that's why you feel, you know, just a, a tang of nervousness in those elevators. So um, in a normal world, from the perspective of building fans, how can a business bring people so that they're within social or personal space of one another? Things like um, hosting a dinner, a reception, a client conference, whatever, very important stuff. But now that we're in this world, we can't do that. But there is another form of neuroscience that can explain what's happening right now, partly, is that we're missing those human connections. And sure, we have those human connections with our family or the people that we're living with, uh, assuming we do live with other people. But it's very stressful as humans not to have those interactions with other humans. It's very stressful. You may not even know that you're under stress, or you may not know that's why you're under stress, but you're not with your tribe. I haven't been with my Grateful Dead fan friends now for like three months. I haven't been to a live show for three months. It's the longest I've gone since I was 15 years old without going to a live music show. That's a stressful thing because that's my tribe and I miss it. You know, if you can't go to your church. You compensate for it with your Grateful Dead friends. Or is it so in the standard of being a live concert that you've not been able to compensate some of that need? In the case of live music for me, I, I have not been able to compensate. But 
there is a form of neuroscience that it can, can explain what we can and are doing right now, and that's mirror neurons are the part of our, the mirror neurons are the part of our brains that fire when we see somebody doing something or even hear somebody doing something as if we're doing it ourselves. So, for example, if I were to take a bite of a lemon, piece of a lemon, and it's really strong and tart, it's on my lips, it's on my tongue, it makes my eyes close and water a little bit, my mouth watering a little bit. Even by just talking about that, perhaps your mouth is watering and you're tasting a little bit of lemon. That's what mirror neurons are. It's the part of your brain's that fire, brain that fires when you hear or see somebody do something. And it turns out that explains why we think we know a movie star, even though we know we've never met them, because our brains tell us when we see somebody on the screen that we've been in within four feet of them and we know who they are, even though intellectually we know we've never met that movie star. So that explains why so many people are gravitating to Zoom meetings or meetings on other video platforms and why strangely people are having video cocktail hours with their friends. And my 85-year-old mother goes to video church every Sunday and she goes to video exercise class, I think it's every Tuesday, and she and her friends get together on video. And And she didn't had never been on a, on a video platform before that, 85 years wow, of her life. And so that's because our mirror neurons are firing as if those people are actually in the same room. You know, you could be thousands of miles away and you feel like you're in the same room. So that's an important lesson for us as we're trying to build fans in a pandemic or even once we emerge from the pandemic that you can still use tools like video to build fans. So what would you say, kind of like closing down, uh, what would you say the future is going to be with phenocracy? Because it's like, are the rights of the fans going to challenge more of society or is it naturally just going to open the doors that fans are going to have more say, just like what I thought was interesting with the fan fiction where they have an organization, they're having more sense of rights for what they're doing. Do you think that's going to be pushing the business? Where do you think phenocracy is going? One of the things that I I see happening right now as we're recording this, which is we're still in the middle of the pandemic as we're recording this, I see happening, and I sure hope it continues, is that many of us are having a kinder and gentler approach to business. It's actually one of the chapters in the book where we talk about giving gifts and the idea that giving something to the universe with no expectation of anything in return is a really powerful concept. And I'm seeing all over the place that many, many people are being kinder and gentler than they were even just a couple of months ago. And that I'm very hopeful that this pandemic, as terrible as it is, might usher in an era where maybe we will continue to be kinder and gentler to one another. I um, I did a virtual presentation for several hundred people, um, uh, uh, I think it was last week, and I asked a question using the polling feature. Do you feel as though it, it that we are now in a kinder and gentler world? And I forget the exact number, but something like 85% of the people agreed with that statement. So I'm hopeful that we'll continue to do that. But how do you think about, because what I thought was interesting in your book, you talk about robot influencers. Yeah. 
you have like these uh, big brands and they're almost using robots instead of using a Kardashian, they're using a robot. So we're having this society now where we're having fans that are liking a robot. You're having this interaction. Where do you think that's going to be going with the phenocracy? Well, um, the whole rise of, of artificial intelligence, machine learning, robot chat bots and things like that have a place, but they absolutely do not replace a true human connection. And I think the more that we humans interact with machines, the more, we, the more that Netflix tells us what we should watch next, the more we want a true human connection. And so I think that while we recognize that machines can help us in our life, I think it also pushes us to be even more human in other parts of our life. And so what would you say like as a hack or an advice for someone that's trying to recruit fans? What is the one takeaway that you would uh, like? To share? One of the most surprising things in the, that we learned in our research, my daughter Rico and I, as we were researching this idea for fan, fanocracy, and it's something that I want, it's, but it'd be a wonderful place to end on is the idea of passion. Passion is infectious. And the idea that, um, you know, I'm passionate about the Grateful Dead. I'm passionate about live music. Reiko is passionate about Harry Potter and going and cosplaying at Comic-Con. And when we ran into people who are passionate about something, it really truly drove fans to them. And they didn't, the people who became fans didn't even have to share the same thing that, that, that person was passionate about. So we met a dentist. His name is Dr. John Marashi. And I actually met him at a Tony Robbins event because I speak at Tony Robbins Business Mastery events. So I was speaking for two hours in front of 2,500 people and Dr. Marashi was in the room. And he came up to me afterwards and goes, David, I, I really like your idea on fandom. And I'm a dentist. I don't have fans. And I said, well, wait a minute. You can have fans. And I said to him, Dr. Marashi, um, what do you love to do? And he says, oh, my God, I love to skateboard, a huge skateboarder. Love, I love it. I'm a huge fan of skateboarding. And I said, cool. Why don't you celebrate the fact that you love skateboarding within your dental practice? And so he did. And he put skateboards on the wall of his dental practice rather than the boring art that had been up there before. He skateboards from one examination room to another within the practice. He, he has a, He does. Okay. He has an Instagram feed with 14,000 followers, many of, uh, many of the photographs he's shared of him skateboarding. He, on his website for his dental practice, he has pictures of him skateboarding. And so Dr. Marashi contact, this was two years ago that I first met him. He contacted me a couple months ago and says, David, this has been great. I've grown my business by 30% just by showcasing that I love to skateboard because, because people are attracted to the fact that I love to skateboard. And so for him, passion is infectious. For all of us, passion is infectious. It kind of goes back to what we were chatting about with, you know, people's boring LinkedIn profiles. But I think that if you want to attract fans, you need to first be passionate for what you do, and then people will be attracted to that. Well, I do want to thank you. This went too quickly. I could talk to you for another hour about this, but uh, I know that you have to go on to the next thing. But I just really want to thank you so much. To the listeners, let's be more passionate. I know I've learned that. It's uh, With my LinkedIn, I actually did it in my uh, in my eye, which was really, really hard, but uh -huh. I, got, I got it through. <laughs> That's good. Excellent. Well done.
So thank you so much for this hour. And um, in the show notes, we'll we'll put a link to your to your website, uh, to your uh, book. Is there anywhere else you want? Yeah, it'd be great if you could link to fanocracy.com. You can learn more about the book that way. And on social media, I am DM Scott, D-M-S-C-O-T-T. And then to David Meerman Scott would be great. .com would be great as well. And we will do that. Thank Thank you. you Great to chat with you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you know at least one or two friends that would get a lot of value from this, send this episode or text a couple of your friends right now to WhatsApp group, post it on your Instagram stories, Facebook or Twitter. And don't forget to tag me at Torin B. Share with anyone you think that needs to hear this message. And if you're new, please pop on over to your favorite podcast app and subscribe. Leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And how can we prove and make this better? Or how did this help you? And don't forget to join us next week for another episode of Moving Beyond Acronyms.